Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Pop with Corn. I'm here joined uh, with Jack. Howdy. Yeah, my name is Jack Hollis. I am a uh, former researcher at the LBJ School, which is a public policy school. Uh, I studied economics and ecology, um, but found that I was being trained to uh, work in the professional managerial class, and I am now an uh, independent researcher working part-time and uh, self-funding. I'm currently working on a... Uh, YouTube series on left-wing political philosophy, economics, uh, things like that. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm here today to mostly talk about accelerationism. Uh, you expressed interest in uh, the interview that I, so last, I guess two weeks ago, I did an interview with uh, Cooper Cherry on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Um, so I talked a little bit about um, Nick Land, Mark Fisher, and the kind of birth of accelerationism as a general philosophy and left accelerationism as a specific philosophy. So I'm more than happy to go a little deeper into that today. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I'm definitely excited to get a little bit more into that, um, especially Mark Fisher, just because he doesn't get as much. Um, well, he did, and he still does. He gets some decent attention, but it seems like... I think least, a lot of his critical theory uh, gets is like popular. You know, ca capitalist realism, I think everyone acknowledges as a general opus of like the critical theory theory genre and the like Jameson Zizek tradition, but he's got a lot of other really good stuff as well that I think is slept on. Definitely. And then real quick, just before I forget, I also want to mention that David Cavada here is here in the room with us. Um, hey everyone. And he will also be chiming in from time to time, but I guess, I guess we can just, um, really get into kind of Mark Fisher's work just right off the bat. Um, and then especially how it pertains to like the political landscape um, because you did mention how a lot of his work tends to be more on like the critical theory, um, side. Um, and it seems like what's, what's her name? Uh, Alex, uh, Cernicek is, am I saying that right? Um, uh, so Alex Williams is, is, oh no, Alex Williams. Nick, uh, Cernicek or Cernicek? I, I don't exactly, I don't know. And I, I don't feel like I'm going to get it right. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. He has a weird, um, Nick, is it? Yeah, Nick Cernich. He has a weird last name, but I digress. Um, mm -hmm. They seem to have picked up the left accelerationist mantle um, af yeah. after Mark Fisher's. Yeah, um, I would say that Mark Fisher is definitely a theorist of um, kind of stagnation. He kind of talks a lot about uh, how neoliberalism has produced kind of cultural as well as economic stagnation. I think he, you know, he's very interested in the economic side of things, but he kind of narrows in on culture as a specific manifestation of how these things have slowed down. So like um, in acid communism, he kind of highlights how the neoliberal project was kind of marshaled to uh, suppress these, you know, revolutionary kind of blossomings that were enabled by the, you know, strong welfare state, the Keynesian consensus um, neoliberalism kind of was in uh, officially targeting those kind of welfare states, uh, social security nets, but uh, unofficially, he argues, targeted those kind of genuine threats to capitalism that mm -hmm. emerged out of that era. Um, so, yeah, I think that he kind of um, focuses on how things have 
begun to, you know, the accelerationist kind of tendency that Land wrote about in the 90s, he happened to be, it seems, on the tail end of, and in many ways... Oh, I think you, you're flatlining. Leveling off of those kind of radical, explosive tendencies. Um, Sorry, can, so, you, I mean, can you repeat what you said? You flatlined for a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, he kind of theorizes uh, neoliberalism as a... Uh, flatlining of that kind of explosive accelerationist tendency that mm -hmm. land talks about in the 90s it seems that land was kind of on the tail end of that trend and kind of maybe saw something that was no longer happening just as it was beginning to come to of... an end or exactly yeah um so i mean like in things like capitalist realism in um this great essay called the slow cancellation of the future um and acid communism, Fisher talks about just how this uh, kind of stagnation is expressed in cultural terms. Um, you know, he gives examples like uh, Amy Winehouse uh, and the Arctic Monkeys as kind of revisiting and digging up old styles from the 60s and 80s rather than creating new culture. So he kind of viewed the general trend of capitalist techno-economic stagnation as it manifested itself in a stagnating culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then how do you think, um, cause I know his work acid communism, at least on certain ways that you can interpret that work. Cause, um, for those of you who don't know, Mark Fisher, um, uh, how would I say it? He passed away in 2017. Um, he yeah, committed suicide. Side by side in, uh, early 2017. Um, yeah, acid communism was very much kind of, I think, the first attempts at him to kind of elaborate a positive aspect, whereas, you know, capitalist realism is really just a bleak, um, sober look at how, you know. That like managerial, uh, yeah, managerial aesthetic yeah. or um, oppression. Um, the hollowing out of, okay. I guess it's the hollowing out of the public sphere is kind of, I think, the central thrust of it. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, infiltration of what he calls business ontology into everyday life, kind of um, this mindset that everything should be run like a business. He talks about, you know, a number of things. And he also talks about the ways that, uh, you know, a lot of the movements he talks about in acid communism in the 60s and 70s, especially the hippie movement, were co-opted uh, by capitalism to, you know, create this neoliberal individualism that I think has proliferated and is kind of seen as the main um, mode of subjectivity under capitalism these days. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I have two real quick questions for you. First, how did you become um, familiar with Mark Fisher's work? Um, because I know everyone has kind of like a different story. Some people say that it's like the vampire cat um, exit from the vampire castle. Sorry, um, uh, you, you asked how I became acquainted with Fisher. Oh yeah, with like his work. Um, I think from Rev Left Radio. Uh, yeah, I kind of you know in the aftermath of 2016, uh, before you know Bernie came along, I would have considered myself a very surface level, I guess. Uh, libertarian transhumanist i guess you know i thought elon musk was really cool and mm -hmm. i guess i had no i, I had no real concrete politi uh, politics besides what i had kind of 
you know, I was dissatisfied with the left-right political spectrum as it existed in this country. And when Bernie came along, I guess the idea of socialism, you know, kind of started to click. Uh, and after 2016, I kind of threw myself into researching, you know, all these authors. And I started kind of with uh, a more libertarian socialist on the libertarian socialist side of things with like authors like Murray Bookchin and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say that off the bat, I was very interested in economics. But over time, I've gotten a little more interested in, you know, the critical theory philosophy side of things. Um, and in the, you know, past year, I would say that that has, you know, very much narrowed in on post-structuralism, uh, Deleuze, Guattari, and their kind of intellectual descendants in the form of Land, Fisher, and I guess I would consider Cern Chicken Williams kind of part of that continued lineage. Um, I think that Fisher stood out as someone who kind of, whereas you know, Dillas and Guattari and Land are almost like unreadable half the time. <laughs> Fisher spoke in very, you know, clear, sober terms and described things that I feel uh, kind of are pretty universal to the experience of subjectivity under late capitalism. I think, you know, he. he oh, I think he's flatlining again. Really pinpoints these feelings of kind of em- emptiness and consumer culture. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, you flatlined for a little so bit, but I, I think I got most of what you said. Um, I was going to mention briefly, did you, t- have you taken a chance to look at his um, essay, um, Good for Nothing? Um, I, the name sounds familiar. That's one of the ones where he talks about his depression, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that one where he talks about um, how he doesn't like thinking about things like um, depression, for example, and like a two sub. Uh, from a too like subjective framework um but at the same time the personal can become the impersonal or a way to um kind of uh politicize um yeah i think he kind of you know this is he definitely started off probably a lot more influenced by Deleuze and Guattari that land they were all very influenced by Deleuze and Guattari and this is like one of their main ideas that they advance is that you know these mental illnesses uh and, you know, their whole critique is of psychoanalysis uh, as um, kind of reifying mental illnesses as things of themselves, I guess, the Kantian term. Mm-hmm. They kind of don't look critically as, at, you know, what causes these mental illnesses. And in capitalist realism, you know, Mark has a really good turn of phrase where he says that uh, these kind of diseases have been chemico-biologized so that, you know, social aspect of what causes them is completely ignored in favor of a chemical biological reading of you know depression schizophrenia what have you um but he also mentions that you know there are reasons that we lack serotonin uh that are structural in addition to uh just social you know there are economic reasons that you know we don't get balanced healthy diets under capitalism and that's a you know major part of keeping a healthy you know bodily ecology and you know keeping a healthy mind mm-hmm. um so he kind of like looks at what are the root causes for these kind of things that we assume to just be kind of structures of the human mind yeah um and i guess just touching on that real quick um there's a thing that 
Mark Fisher's sometimes criticized for, which is that he uses his um, depression in a way where he kind of uh, equates it or ties it into the ontology of um, capitalism itself. And um, do you find that that's true when it comes to Fisher? Like he may be, um, how would I say it? Reading capitalism through the lens of a depressed person? Yes. I guess I could see it, but I think that, you know, it's a fair reading. I think that a lot of, you know, people living on a daily basis in this system do experience those kind of uh, pervasive trends of hopelessness and depression. So I think that in a cert- to a certain extent, you know, I think that seems like a little uncharitable. Yeah. I yeah. De- I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And especially yeah. with something like if you compare his work with something like by uh, Deleuze and Guattari, um, they're kind of doing a similar thing by um, kind of ontologizing like schizophrenia in some sense. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like they, you know, read, I mean, Mark doesn't even necessarily exclusively contra- uh, constrain capitalism within the framework of de- depression. He also describes it as having bipolar characteristics, as having, you know, intense periods of economic exuberance followed by like literal, we call economic depressions, depressions. Uh, so there's kind of like this manic depressive trend, not only within ourselves in our trends as consumers, you know, going through these periods of frivolous spending and then, you know, uh, saving and unemployment and things like that. Um, but also in the economy itself. And I think that's, you know, like another thing that he definitely inherited from Deleuze and Guattari. I think there's a really good, like Deleuze and Guattari's framework, you know, looking at capitalism through the lens of schizophrenia, I think is valid in a lot of other ways. Like there's a great observation in Society of the Spectacle uh, Spectacle by Guy Debord, where he kind of observes that, you know, capitalism has schizophrenic qualities in the sense that the car has to market itself against the city. Uh, So the car demands, you know, wide open highways. Uh, The spectacle of the car demands wide open highways, suburbs, things like that. Whereas the spectacle of the city demands, you know, a robust uh, urban life, a downtown. And these things kind of compete against each other. So they're kind of conflicting, fragmented desires. So I think there are a lot of ways you can, a lot of lenses through which you can look at, you know, modernity uh, and compa- and see how modernity manifests as well as kind of reinforces these, uh, you know, trends of mental unwellness or, uh, you know, altered states. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the car example because... um. It reminds me of like car commercials when it's like, uh, go on an adventure, I think is like Toyota's tagline. Um, hmm. and they tell you to go off-roading and all this stuff. And it's like, most people use their cars to commute to work. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, not to get on a totally total tangent, but you know, cars have totally shaped American subjectivity in a, you know, way that is atomizing and individualizing like the suburbs are you know have no organic communal life and that's just kind of one of many ways in which commodities shape the world around us in kind of imperceptible ways like austin the city i live in has uh got you know it's 
characterized by massive sprawl kind of no there you know there's a downtown but it's kind of you know just a a mess mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't have any like um the the flow of traffic isn't organic um for like yeah a i mean term I, or... I guess that, that's another kind of good point that i think mark brings up in like capitalist realism and the like which is that you know our economy was never really planned it just kind of organically sprang up so there's no it's kind of an economy built on momentum and i guess you know you could look at it through a lens lens of ignorance you know we didn't really know how any of these things were going to play out and they kind of all played out according to the dictates of commodification in the market so we've got a society that's really uh characterized by all these clashing impulses mm-hmm. yeah and then um because i wanted to also bring up that fisher um what he tends to do is um kind of he doesn't seem to forget the um uh, the libidinal aspect of an economy right um the the Absolutely, fact that yeah. um economies by and large they're kind of um pushed forward by the the desires of the people themselves um mm-hmm. and to some extent those desires can be constrained by um certain structures um within the system itself. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, he kind of raises good points in capitalist realism, like that there's not really, you can't really say anymore that the bourgeois is at the commanding heights of the economy. It's just kind of an abstract and personal structure of, you know, abstract domination at this point that uh, kind of shapes itself according to, you know, certain desires, but, you know, it can't fulfill other desires that are not kind of, dictated by the lens of commodification so it can't fulfill our desires for you know a strong social life it can you know fulfill our desires for consumption and you know individualization but it can't you know deliver on these kind of things that it has eroded through deterritorialization like you know family life uh religion like a robust sense of community i guess I was gonna, and I think that was, you know, a lot of what led to Mark's kind of persistent depression. Mm, I de- I definitely agree with um what you've mentioned, um, and then I guess real quick, um, how the the process of deterritorialization, as you mentioned, it seems to erode away a lot of these traditional um institutions. Um, I think Land calls them the human security system. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that framework for sure. Um, you know. They he he has a good analogy, which is that, you know, capital is the gunships blowing out the back walls of China, not the back walls, the walls of China. Um, you know, he argues that capitalism just kind of sweeps across the globe like a, uh, I guess, like almost like a pathogen and that there are these systems that we use to try and constrain them uh, that are ultimately, I guess, in his eyes, futile. And I, I think that kind of is the essence of his political project, Lands, which is to kind of destroy this human security system uh, and let capital take its natural course. Yeah, I guess... I want to ask you real quick, um, because I think Fisher struggles with this a bit more than Land does in terms of um, agency under capitalism. Um, 
because to, to at least to me it seems that land doesn't believe in any form of like human um agency um insofar as we already are uh continuing this um yeah i think i think land, for land you know all of this is entirely out of our hands um the development of technology really human beings kind of have no real say in it you know impersonal market forces and the flows of capital are more determining than you know the actions of any individual capitalist or what have you mm-hmm. um and then how do you think um well, mark fisher tries to like resolve some of those issues because it seems like he's still working within a more um delusing guitarian framework than even land because land completely seems to abolish the the uh, what would you call like the compensatory factors of um re-territorialization um yeah i guess you know i think his philosophy i, I don't think he, they do away with re-territorialization entirely i think he ignores it you know he's kind of coming at Deleuze and Guattari through a creative misreading where he's really focusing on the deterritorializing deterritorializing aspect. Um, but, you know, I think Mark, in spite of, you know, being very influenced by Deleuze and Guattari and Land, who were both, or who are all kind of anti-humanist philosophers, Mark definitely retains some of the base humanism that I guess defined early socialism um and he seems to think that you know i I think he has a good analogy which is that uh you know he he talks about uh land's philosophy as one in which uh capital is not unmasked as exploited labor power but instead humans are revealed as the meat puppets of capital but and i mentioned that in uh cooper's interview but he then clarifies that, you know, capital can't shed its human face. It's always conditioned by its relationship to human needs. Mm -hmm. So while it may, you know, assume these impersonal, inhuman kind of characteristics, um, you know, I compared capital to the matrix in my interview with Cooper and uh, in my series, um, he clarifies that there really isn't um, capital without human labor. Uh, So for him, and this is kind of a critique that um, you can see kind of from a more economic lens if you read an author like Moisha Postone, who kind of is a late theorist of um, capital through the lens of time. Um, and I think kind of can be folded neatly into a left accelerationist perspective. Um, you know, capital always relies on human labor for measuring value uh for self-valorization so in order for capital to develop it needs the constant input of human labor to extract a surplus um so for mark and for postone uh you know you really can't have like land characterizes capital in interviews as auto autonomizing meaning that he thinks it's capable of its own self-improvement but i think that you know when you look at the economics of the situation that's really not the case I also um, think that when you look at something like the rise of Web 2.0 with like Facebook and uh, these large social media corporations and the aggregation of data, um, mm-hmm. that's, that kind of seems to, in my opinion at least, it seems to kind of blow his thesis out of the water. But <laughs> at least to some extent, like you wouldn't, ex- at least if you do have a framework of like pure deterritorialization, at least coming from the, the 90s, um, 
something like, like Facebook doesn't make sense. Yeah. 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 I think Facebook and, you know, social media in general is a very interesting phenomena in the sense that it's trying and utterly failing. Like it's trying to build a kind of sense of community on the internet, but is failing because it's kind of corrupted by these market imperatives that, you know, force it to harvest data from its consumers and just, you know, basically serve as massive advertising platforms. Um, I think this is something that kind of Cernicek and Williams kind of talk about in their manifesto for an accelerationist politics, the kind of like left accelerationist opening salvo, I guess you could call it, which is that, you know, there is potential for a more human scaled social media uh, if it doesn't, you know, exist in the, you know, market imperatives of Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Um, to go back to something that you mentioned a little earlier um, in regards to how capital always needs to some extent, like the validation of like um, both, I would say like social, um, like human interaction to some extent. And then um, you said, you mentioned like human labor that almost seems to be, um, at least to me, that almost sounds quite um, Heideggerian in the sense that um, you can't completely remove technology from the social, um, how would I say it? The social implications that it. Um... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, technology, I guess this is like more of like an, and I think I'm not super familiar with Heidegger, so I don't know if he's coming at it from like an anthropological perspective, but mm -hmm. like, you know, through the lens of anthropology, we would call it embeddedness, you know, techno technological relations are still embedded within a wider human fra framework. They don't, you know, operate entirely independent of uh, our, you know, wants and needs. These technologies, you know, while they may be shaped by desires that are in turn shaped by capitalism, they're still shaped by human desires. Mm. Yeah. Which I think that's tying back again to Mark's whole um, fascination with like the libidinal aspects of um, most economies, um, even something like capitalism, which can't completely get rid of um, uh, what would you call it? Like proletariat desire. Um, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I think this is also like a really interesting kind of trend you see when you look at the economy is that, um, you know, the desires reflected in incredibly cheap consumer goods are really not like, you know, we're seeing luxury goods become much cheaper, whereas necessities are becoming uh, more and more expensive. So d the desire is kind of skewed to where the market currently is. So the market uh, expresses a preference for luxury goods rather than necessities. So, you know, there is definitely a power imbalance in the kind of libidinal, libidinal economy of capitalism itself, where, you know, in the past, you probably could have called them bourgeois desires. You know, ec economists like Thorstein Veblen talked about the theory of the leisure class, but leisure has kind of been democratized in the last hundred years. So it's not just, you know, the luxury tastes of the bourgeoisie shaping what is produced, but also our, you know, everyday desires for things to make life more convenient or what have you. But yeah, there is definitely a disconnect between uh, the economy of desire and the economy of needs. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Um, and I actually want to build up on that because um, I want to talk about real quick, like Bernie Sanders, um, just because, sure. I mean, I feel like it's pretty relevant with the... Um, 20 what 2020 elections 
you know, happening right now. Mm-hmm. And I guess how that ties into more of like a, I wouldn't want to say that Bernie Sanders is like acid communism. Um, although I, yeah. I did tweet, I did tweet something like that. <laughs> which I mean, there was this like phenomena of acid Corbynism where like Fisher <laughs> himself, like kind of, these were like a lot of the things that Corbyn was talking about, you know, basic social democratic reforms to kind of they like fisher viewed these things the rebuilding of these hollowed out institutions that have been kind of sacked by neoliberalism as a first step in a greater project you know the social movements of the 60s and 70s that were so radical and that i think mayor pete said last (laughs) night some incredibly stupid bullshit about um you know he identified bernie's desires with like the social movements of the 60s which is I think absurd because I think most Americans view the sixties as the, like a period of genuine social progress and transformative change. Um, even but, I, just to touch on that real quick, the, even, even like hardcore, like neoconservatives thinks that too, um, by and large, um, at least when it comes to like the, like libertarian aspects of, um, the sixties, um, yeah. like in hippie communes and stuff like that. I mean, you know, even with like someone like Martin Luther King land in the dark enlightenment, he talks about how conservatism basically has to kowtow to these progressive figures and pretend that, you know, whereas like modern conservatives, no doubt would have still been fighting MLK tooth and nail. They kind of have to make overtures to that kind of progressive legacy, I guess. But going back to like the concept of, you know, acid Corbinism, you know, Fisher talked a lot about how, these uh the rebuilding of like these social democratic institutions the rebuilding of labor uh, labor power in the form of unions and whatnot were kind of a necessary first step because these progressive social movements of the 60s and 70s would not have happened if it weren't for that kind of robust sense of social security that existed under um you know the government like the welfare keynesian consensus yeah um and i guess do you think i guess this ties into like the question that i asked earlier about agency um and whether or not um like humans under capitalism have uh like either too little or too much agency um do you think like something like you mentioned about how it seems that like luxury seem to be getting cheaper and cheaper but things for example i think you mentioned this in um cooper's podcast um where um it seems like things like just basic needs like health and like healthcare um and housing and things like that seem to be getting more and more expensive mm-hmm. um do you think uh like i mentioned the linkage between socialist movements or socialist reforms with people like candidates like bernie sanders do you think that um how would i say this D- does that help revive certain like you mentioned um certain uh, you could call it like tones or motifs of the sixties, uh, political, um, yeah, I would say so. You know, like the sixties and seventies were kind of the nadir of the labor movement's power. I think, um, you know, the reason the economic crisis of the seventies kind of was so bad and, uh, played out for so long was that the unions were still powerful when the markets were turning downwards. Um, and I think that, you know, neoliberalism was just one of multiple, kind of responses to that crisis. Um, but there were other ones that could have involved the furthering of a socialist project through, you know, cutting the work day and the work week, uh, as opposed to, you know, 
unevenly distributing uh, work among the kind of flexibilized gig economy that we see now. I think that, you know, um, the rebuilding of labor is critical to like not only the uh, prospect of, you know, cheaper social services like healthcare and housing, whatnot, things that have been distorted by 50 years of total market dominance, um, but also towards the, you know, accelerationist pro project, like I talked about on uh, Cooper's podcast, how the labor movement, an active labor movement really incentivizes capital to replace labor with machines, because when you have a labor movement fighting for uh, higher pay and less work time, you really put the pressure on capital to kind of deliver, I guess. And I think that's a large part of why you've seen this stalling out. But I think another reason that, you know, these goods are getting so uh, kind of expensive, these necessities, is that, you know, while neoliberalism kind of has this pretense to leanness and efficiency, it really protects a lot of these, like, entrenched power structures like rent-seeking behavior and the insurance industry uh, debt collection, things like that, that, you know, are generally agreed on as market inefficiencies. Like if you look at Adam Smith, you know, he thought rent was an absolute abomination. Uh, and like only recently with like Milton Friedman, do you ever see any economist defending rent whatsoever? So, you know, we have these like inefficient structures that we've been taught to believe are natural, like rent and debt and they're really interfering with the kind of, um, I guess, economic health, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then do you think that um, this pressure, I guess, that, that you mentioned, do you think that almost in a way tends to kind of strive or push capitalism towards full automation? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, um, to put it in Marxian terms, you know, Marx talked about surplus value. He talked about absolute and relative surplus value. Absolute surplus value is the time worked by laborers and relative surplus value is the efficiency of machines putting out. So like, you know, you can put out more goods by having your workers work more time, but you can also put out more goods by making more efficient machines. And when you have a labor movement fighting for less time, you have incentive to roll out machines that are more efficient and can produce to make up for that lost time. So, you know, when you look at like the industrial revolution and the last 200 years, things don't really kick off until you start to see active labor movements like, you know, the, um, I think it was like a steam powered loom was kind of like the first technology that really, you know, set off this like kind of resistance, labor resistance. I, I don't know if it was the Chartists in England who were kind of the first real labor movement, but they kind of saw this automation and were like, you know, they reacted to it kind of with hostility at first, but I think they also realized that these technologies in the long run could free them from the burden of, you know, toil. Yeah. Do you think um, more, I guess, more resources should be um, pushed or concentrated into the efforts of building um, like real autonomous machines for uh, more complex labor and, and instead of 
what corporations seem to be doing, which is uh, they seem to be automating, but they seem to be automating jobs that one are obviously easier to automate, for example, like service jobs, like checkouts um, and clerical jobs. Um, that seems to be where the market seems to be um, focusing more of its efforts than, for example, like even driver, 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 driverless cars. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I think with a lot of these things, you know, um, a lot of automation is being directed towards industries that are, or, or like commodities that, you know, could be phased out by developing more efficient systems. So it, it's not even a matter of necessarily needing to automate, you know, instead of having a city that's based around cars, you could have a city that's based around public transport. And I think these things are much easier to automate than, you know, build self-driving cars. Uh, it's much easier to have like an automatically run train system, for example. Um, so I think that a lot of, and, you know, you also see automation happening in terms of like military technology, you're getting like autonomous drones and things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, David Graeber points out in his essay on flying cars, it's called, um, which kind of starts out with a provocative question. Like, you know, he grew up, he was born in like the fifties or sixties or something like that. And, you know, was promised flying cars and this, you know, radical, futuristic technology but you know in the essay he points out that 95 percent of robotics funding is going to the pentagon so i think a lot of effort at automation is being misdirected you know we could just as easily you know automate you know a lot of like intellectual labor jobs could be not even automated but just taken out of existence by creating more efficient administrative forms so you don't have massive you know health insurance bureaucracies and whatnot yeah yeah, um, and I think that's like, you know, part of the reason that these jobs still exist. And this is another thing that Graeber talks about in Bullshit Jobs, if you've ever read that or <laughs> if you're familiar with that at all. Uh, so he argues that like, and this is based on like public polling that he did for the book, uh, that like one third of people in the developed world feel that their job contributes nothing to society. And uh, these bullshit jobs are, you know, things like the health insurance industry, which are only preserved because like, you know, when Obama was debating uh, health care in 2008, he said, you know, we can't insure, eliminate the insurance industry because that means getting rid of two to three million jobs. Uh, so a lot of these structures are being kept in place because they are important for maintaining the, you know, continued functioning of capitalism rather than because they're, you know, efficient. And even, you know, yeah, so I, th I think discourse around automation is oftentimes kind of still set by terms of the market. You know, we see a lot of automation happening in like flashy things like Teslas and things like that. But, you know, I, I think even some of these things are superfluous, you know, or yeah, misguided use of funds and resources. Yeah, definitely. Um, just a real quick tangent. What did you think about Elon Musk's Cybertruck aesthetically? <laughs> um <laughs> Gosh, you know, I, I, I won't lie. It sucks. Like it, it's not my, <laughs> it's not my style. Like I think when I think like cars of the future, I think more like, um, I don't know, more sleek. Like, I guess he, he really leaned into like a brutalist aesthetic, which is not something I would have pegged him for. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. Um, David, do you have any comments on, on the, the cyber, cyber truck? Um, I think that thing's hideous. <laughs> oh. It reminds me of the 
uh, I think I think I saw a Twitter thread about it about how the Cybertruck just seems to be buying into what Mark Fisher called the slow cancellation of um, the futures, um, and to some extent how um, that sense of like nostalgia that you mentioned earlier, like it happens with music, but in a sense that it's also happening with like aesthetics, like cyberpunk itself, which is like, yeah, the Cybertruck just looks like it's a lot less Jetsons and a lot more like Terminator. You know, it's, yeah. it doesn't look like. <laughs> uh, future I want to live in. I'll say that much. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like a, it looks like a nostalgia for a future that, in a way, it already it already happened, right? Um, or at least it happened in like popular culture or like media. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think that's you know, kind of another. Yeah, that's another. I guess like really important point of Marx is that like, and Graeber has a really great quote about this as well, which is like you know, he talks about the CGI they use in Star Wars and. You know, a lot of the kind of advancements we've seen in technology, he says, are like in, you know, uh, digital and medical technologies. They're technologies of simulation, he calls them. Uh, so, like, he remembers going to see one of the new Star Wars and thinking, wow, the CGI is really impressive. I bet people in the past would be really impressed by this. And then he thinks, wait a second, they thought that we'd actually be doing, like, we'd be in space by now, you know, colonizing the <laughs> stars and whatnot. And I think even that, you know, you can debate whether or not that's a realistic vision for a future society. I think, you know, it's just as likely that we tend in the direction of singularity rather than like expansion. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of kind of aesthetic appeals to futurity that are kind of um, like used to cover up fundamentally unfuturistic technologies yeah like the like the cybertruck is a perfect example of that you know it's an aesthetic of futurity applied to a profoundly regressive technology definitely yeah. um especially with i'm glad we could tie up the cars you know <laughs> yeah when um, i brought that up i didn't feel like <laughs> um yeah you bring up a really good point because i f i feel like people think oh and i'm really guilty of this too so i'm, I'm not i wouldn't say like just people in general but um thinking like lithium batteries are like this futuristic thing. And it's like our battery technology really hasn't changed since basically we um, kind of made, uh, what would you call it? The lithium cells um, more com compact than cell phones. It's yeah. Cell phone sure. lithium battery technology seems to be even more advanced than um, basically the whole Tesla car, which is just basically motor motors running on it's, traditional yeah, lithium batteries like lithium batteries like stapled together on the bottom of a car it doesn't seem you know profoundly like i think a lot of that is because of uh you know and i think this is one of the prime areas that the left like really fucked up hard but uh kind of our stigmatization stigmatization of nuclear energy you know um is really interfering with our ability to kind of deliver on our promises of green energy and things like that. Um, you know, nuclear energy might be, you know, it's been tarnished by things like Chernobyl, but, uh, you know, there are ways to make it safer. And the reason that things like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island happened were not the result of the technology failing, but the result of, you know, uh, government cutbacks, not springing for the technology that could have prevented those kinds of things. So I think, um, we're kind of leaning into this like solar panel, wind panel or wind power kind of uh, vision of a future economy, but that's still another kind of 
inefficient industry that is very extractive and, you know, not entirely futuristic, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to me, this is kind of like a personal pet peeve of mine when people bring up like green capitalism. I'm like, sure. But that just seems to me like the biggest contradiction, um, at least oh, in terms sure. of like yeah. just how just basically on my physics 101 understanding of entropy that just seems to be like um that's not really how it works you're always going to lose um some of the energy inputs that you're receiving no matter what um so it doesn't matter how efficient you make those um what's it called those uh wind turbines um you're always not going to generate the energy that you need and then especially with the demand of energy consumption in the united states um you're never you're never going to supplement that at least until the technology gets super good and at that time we're probably going to be all dead and all the what is yeah, it, the, all sure. the greenhouse gases are going to be I mean, like land, I don't think land has any illusions that you know there's such a thing as green capitalism when he talks about you know technological futures he kind of like makes fun of the left for having this like humanist attachment to the earth itself um like he has this essay called uh a critique of transcendental miserabilism where he like kind of critiques this you know and it, this almost like depressive trend on the left like going back to what we talked to about mark uh and his work um he kind of criticizes the left for being like stuck in this like area of complete despair about the future of uh you know capitalism and climate change and whatnot and really unable to orient itself to any positive solutions. And I think that's where, you know, things like left accelerationism come in. Um, it's a matter of kind of reclaiming the future. Yeah. And do you think then that should be kind of both the position that um, like a left accelerationist and then by extension, like a, as a communist um, should take, and then kind of tying that into like aesthetics, it seems that the left completely has lost the ability to, for lack of a better term, meme compared to the right. Um, yeah. And it's just like the dissolution of any coherent aesthetic, at least from the left, seems to have severely crippled it. Um, yeah, I, I. this is kind of like, I guess, coming from a libertarian socialist, I guess, like anarchist bent when I first got into the leftism, I, I, I kind of think that, um, you know, Marxism has really oriented itself around critique uh, for the last 200 years and you know it just is a progressive strengthening and deepening of critique but it really has no positive content and I think that's where something like anarchism can make up for it and kind of deliver these the kind of like utopianism that the left has lost sight of I guess you know you know mm -hmm. Marx kind of like dismissed the term utopianism because he had this vision of socialism as a, you know, scientific process and kind of rejected what he saw as the, uh, I guess, retreat from society by like utopian socialists. But I think that it's important to, you know, in addition to, you know, having strong critiques of the current system, envision a future. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a great, great quote from like, Alan Moore, the guy who did Watchmen and whatnot, uh, which is that like, if you don't have if you don't imagine a future, there's a good chance you won't have one. Uh, and I think that, you know, speaks to like, not only like a social future, but even an individual future, you know, like, I think that like depression can very easily set in if you can't see a way out. And I think that kind of must've been what Mark dealt with in his later years, uh, just like 
this oppressive atmosphere of capitalist realism really weighed on him uh, in a way that he felt he couldn't really overcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you take a, by any chance, have you taken a look at um, Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie? Um, I have not, no. Okay. Yeah, I guess I skew more towards like the, like, I definitely am interested in some of his cultural stuff, but, uh, you know, the economics of the critique is usually what I'm interested in. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just going to mention the connections between like the weird and the eerie and like, uh, like the possibility of like new futures. Um, but I guess we won't, we we don't. Well, I mean like, yeah, I mean, what is he kind of like, is he looking at specific pieces of culture in that or no he's yeah. well yes because you know it's mark fisher and he always seems to tie it to some cultural artifact um yeah for sure mm-hmm. um but then he ties it into kind of like the the aesthetics he kind of calls them two ontological modes which is like the weird um and then the eerie which is the eerie is like the absence or the presence of something that shouldn't be there i kind of forget what he mentions the weird is but it's you can kind of equate it to seeing something where it shouldn't or, or something that exists that you know shouldn't exist mm-hmm. um kind of like seeing a ufo would be kind of weird um, yeah yeah and then in a lot of ways uh you can definitely tie those themes of the weird and the eerie to something like acid communism at least in my opinion because it's like by all means and purposes something like capitalist realism if you take it as a as a let's say a true ontological framework then something like uh socialism um mm-hmm. or communism seems just, otherworldly almost yeah yeah um <laughs> Yeah, so I guess then, that's where, you know, Posadism must have come out of, you know, the, if you're familiar with Jay Posadas. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah me, me and David meme a lot of, uh, a lot about Posadism, or yeah. Posadism. And I think that, you know, this is another thing I'm working on for the series that I'm currently doing, which is, uh, I think Posadism's, or, or Posadas, you know, he had some very out there ideas, like the idea that nuking Earth was a good yeah. idea. <laughs> but I also think, like, uh, so one of the videos I'm working on is a serious examination of his proposition that if aliens exist, they have to be communist because I think, you know, the, uh, kind of reality of global warming is demonstrating that, you know, we are not going to be able to kind of make it into the stars in time to save ourselves from planetary ecological collapse. Uh, so if, there are societies out there that uh, survive that kind of cataclysm, then they most likely had to do it through uh, developing the kind of ecological and social sustainability that I think only socialism can deliver on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. I think that's a really good point actually, because I think even Nick Land touches on this and I think it's on, that's either his lecture or his interview about teleoplexy um, Mm -hmm. where he talks about um, someone asks him something about the politics of the future and he mentions how some people think it's like um like the i think he mentions the soviets had a real true vision of what the future could look like and it definitely they definitely did it's a futurist like soviet aesthetic um yeah and for sure. they had a clear vision of what that would look like especially with things like the um you know the space program that they had competing with the united states and mm-hmm. uh i think it's it, i think it's funny that even land um as far right as he teen- tends to lean now um I mean, he said he's not convinced about something like that, but it's it's funny that he still brings something up, uh, like the possibility of like, l- let's say we do discover alien life. I'm not too certain about that, but in the case yeah. that we do, um, it would completely, again, com- almost completely throw out his thesis about um, overextending the 
capitalist process to even at, at a cosmological scale or yeah and i guess that's you know another kind of you know if there is a massive universe spanning or the potential of the universe spanning capitalist society why haven't they invaded earth and stolen all our resources yet i mean that's what a capitalist society does it's constantly oriented towards the outside and towards new frontiers that it can exploit so if there was the possibility of you know capitalism in space i think it would have happened by now and i think um you know fisher kind of like talks about this when he talks about wally um he kind of views wally as a model of you know the limits of uh i guess ecological capitalism yeah um he kind of throws it out there as an example of how uh capitalism is really constrained by these environmental factors and it can't just you know slough off the earth like a uh kind of used carcass it, mm. you know relies on the constant input of new resources to uh continue expanding and you can't have a capitalism that is not constantly appropriating new resources i think that's why we're seeing a lot of the you know economic stagnation we see today is because you know these new frontiers like india and china and africa which were incorporated in like the early, late 19th early 20th century uh you know they're becoming developed and they're really you know there's only so much we can extract from those uh you know parts of the world without i guess it catching up to us yeah yeah um and then i guess just moving on real quick um you are working on a series i want to talk real quick about your um personal works um you're working mm -hmm. on a new youtube series briefly can you tell us what youtube channel um uh so it'll be called utopia tv um currently nothing up there right now i'm uh actually just now starting uh the episode on nick land the matrix and intelligent capital um but It'll, uh, I guess the course thrust of it will be an exploration of uh, the breaking down kind of like from a hermeneutical perspective, each sect of the left, what they're talking about, what they're, it's kind of a history of leftism from, you know, uh, you know, the French Revolution of Proudhon to Marx to the modern day. Uh, and it's not really attempting to caricaturize any of those, like even when it comes to out there philosophies like Posadism and anarcho-primitivism and whatnot i'm really trying to get to the bottom of what they're talking about what their critiques are about and uh how they can play into building a more robust kind of unified narrative yeah definitely um but uh i guess the ones i'm really excited about are the ones where i get to you know just talk about one author and one work like nick land in the matrix or uh yeah what other ones do you have in the series if you don't mind me asking um so i mean I currently, like, for the first season, I'm doing, like, a couple episodes that'll be, like, about Posadism, about anarcho-capitalism, and why it doesn't fit in the anarchist, anarchist framework, um, the history of anti-fascism. I'm also doing one on Buddhism and socialism, kind of comparing the metaphysics of the Buddhist system to, like, the entire history of Western metaphysics. Like, I think that, in many ways, um, Buddhism kind of preempted the medical metaphysical frameworks of like hume kant deleuze uh and in a lot of ways we've just been catching up to things that they figured out two thousand years ago um but i'm also doing you know a series on pop culture so there'll be one on uh 
you know, capitalism and schizophrenia through the lens of the Netflix series Maniac. Uh, in the future, mm -hmm. I want to do one comparing the visions of, you know, the bourgeoisie through the show Billions versus, like, through the show, uh, shit, what's it called? Succession, because I think they pre present two very kind of differing uh, stories about, you know, the modern capitalism, you know, Billions posits a omnipotent capitalist who's like brilliant and succession just kind of shows these people as completely you know vain idiots who have no actual control over the mechanisms of power mm. um so yeah it's just a kind of exploration of philosophy politics and history uh through the lens of pop culture because i have always been definitely addicted to that kind of stuff yeah yeah definitely um, what other pro do you have any other projects you're currently working on? Um, I guess, um, yeah. So when I first started reading all this stuff, when I first got into, uh, left-wing politics, I started writing a book, um, I writing notes really that eventually kind of have slowly turned into a book and it's like somewhere like 300 pages so far with like no end in sight. So I think that, uh, the YouTube series I'm working on Utopia TV is really a effort to, um, put that into like, because the book will probably end up being somewhere like 12,000 or 1200 pages long. So to put that into kind of processable, you know, like bite-sized uh, chunks or exactly because, you know, like no one really has the time if they're not a serious academic to devour a thousand page book. Yeah. Um, but the book I'm working on kind of looks at, uh, capital, uh, in the age of uh, ecological limits imposed by climate change and uh, kind of is more economic-y. Yeah, it's it's kind of jargonful, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so we are coming up on an hour. Um, I do, don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do want to ask you one, um, I guess like a couple more questions, just real quick. Um, one of them would be in terms of um, the left, like a candidate like Bernie Sanders, um, if they were to be, um, they were to win the primaries, for example, and then go up toe to toe, uh, with Trump. First question, do you think he could win? And then, um, the follow-up question would be, if he doesn't, what do you think that would mean for, uh, like a revival of the socialist, um, movement? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I, like if you look at head to head polling, I think Bernie has the best uh, prospects against Trump. I think that, you know, there will probably be more efforts to sabotage him, whether that be like a broker convention or like a third party run from someone like Bloomberg. But I think that if it's just a head to head between Bernie and Trump, I think Bernie likely wins. I don't know, you know, how much he can, I think the power of the presidency has definitely like grown exponentially since like the founding of the United States. So I think that he could get a lot done, but, uh, I think if he loses, that definitely poses interesting questions about whether the you know socialist left has a future in the Democratic Party, which I think the answer is probably no. But I think if he wins, there's a significant chance that he could you know transform those you know old sclerotic institutions into something more uh, workable. Yeah. Awesome. For sure. And then, um, yeah. Do you have any uh, final comments or anything that you want to add, real quick, um, just in general, or? Any last points of discussion? 
Yeah, I guess I think that um, kind of bringing it back to, you know, the concept of accelerationism, I think that uh, a lot of the change that needs to happen will kind of require a revitalization of basic working class politics. You know, there is a limited amount of time to get this all done, but I think that uh, in order to have a springboard off which to build any kind of uh, alternative left-wing project, you really have to start clawing back some of the things that Newism has kind of uh, taken away from us. Yeah. And I think um, there is a lot of potential, not only in automation, but in terms of just uh, quality of life, in terms of reducing the working day uh, for uh, a socialist left project to appeal to people on an everyday basis and to kind of create that richer uh, culture that, you know, Mark talked about that, uh, you know, to build genuine institutions of collective solidarity. Yeah, definitely. Um... I guess you made me think of another question. Um, sure. Uh, do you think I, I do have time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, do you think something like um, what would you call the like religion? Do you think that has a place um, to revital to be revitalized? For example, on something like uh, the socialist or the leftist uh, project. Um, yeah, I, I do think so. Actually, I mean, like, I think that uh, there has to be a certain acceptance that you know you can't really be a Catholic fighting against abortion on the left. It's like not, you know, like sustainable position for you. You won't be likely to find any kind of like, you know, I listened to your interview with Justin Murphy. I don't think you're likely to find any purchase as a leftist opposed to abortion. And I think that it's important to kind of like stick to our principles as far as that goes. As far as that goes. But I think if you look at, you know, the remaining kind of strong social institutions that exist in the developed world are often religious ones. Like they have, you know, organic networks of mutual aid and whatnot, uh, charity, even though charity is not always the ideal solution for these things. Like there are resources that the, I guess, religious movement can marshal. Uh, and I think that there are potent, you know, critiques that can be made that combine uh left-wing and religious thought yeah definitely absolutely um, and then you brought up justin murphy and like i, I don't want to give him i don't want to not give him credit because i think he does certain things that i i mean i find pretty yeah, interesting I um i think his whole you know vision of i i guess exit from academia is really inspiring for me personally i think that i guess it has kind of like given me a little bit of the push I need to make my own exit, I guess. Uh, I think that, you know, he's kind of like given perch, like a platform to some real dumbasses like Claire Lehman and stuff like that. But I also think he's kind of, I don't think this is what Gramsci intended, but he's kind of fulfilling that role that Gramsci talked about, about the organic intellectual, uh, about kind of like a kind of working class, uh, intellectual 
unrooted from the kind of sclerotic and uh, bureaucratic institu institutions of academia. Yeah. I think that there's a lot to be said for what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I briefly mentioned in the podcast that um, I think like right at the beginning, I'm like, I think what the way I see him, he's deterritorializing certain aspects of academia, um, mm -hmm. kind of like opening up this little hole for everyone else. Um, I think the thing that he struggles with is like his uh, delivery on some things. Um, yeah. And I, I think that. that's just the nature of his character. Like, I think, I mean, I think part of it is like, you know, he's being provocative. He's definitely like trolling like that in certain <laughs> aspects. Like he's, he's, you know, I guess pushing the envelope. And I think even like his academic research is like not even necessarily, you know, based laws is a very provocative kind of framing of, I, I, reading of Deleuze's, I guess, body of work. Mm -hmm. um, I think that he's, it's hard to tell for me where he's being genuine and where he's like fucking with us. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I even asked, I think I asked him this on the interview. I was like, um, are you, are you serious about some of the things that he tweeted? And he's like, I'm always genuine. And I'm like, I think what he means is he's always genuine about trolling. Um, yeah, exactly. Like sense, he's but, a committed. Um, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah. Did did you happen to read Base Deleuze? I haven't. No, I I've listened to a couple of his podcasts about it and uh, his like roundtable that he did on Theory Talk. Um, I feel like I've been attacking Deleuze, especially for the thing I'm working on from the kind of like psychoanalytical lens. So I've been very specifically trying to learn as much as I can about that. Um, I have not gotten around to Base Deleuze though. No. Um. I think you should definitely read, even if um, people think that it's like not that great. Um, just because, even if it's not like academically rigorous, I think it still does something that's pretty cool, which is like it reterritorializes a lot of Deleuze's own ideas. Um, yeah, I can see if that. that makes sense. Um, yeah, and kind of when he says like the reactionary um, leftism of Deleuze, I'm like, that's just reading Deleuze from like a reactionary framework. Um, I mean, Deleuze like does I think get you know a lot of his influence from Nietzsche. You could you could definitely pin as a reactionary. I like that. There's a good quote Mark Fisher has, which is that like Nietzsche has this like you know baiting the same baiting of progressive tendencies that mm. I think you see in like Deleuze, Land, and I guess even Justin Murphy to an extent. He's like challenging a lot of um, what I think are kind of. And this is like something, you know, uh, Cernicek and Williams talk about when they talk about folk politics mm. as like a uh, kind of model for the modern left is very, you know, centered on a moral critique of capitalism, which I think is a dead end. Um, you know, if you want to mount any substantial challenge to capitalism, you have to think strategically. And I think that the folk left or folk, folk political left has very much reacted to uh, kind of capitalism rather than done anything legitimate to go scare against it. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad that you brought up what you mentioned earlier, like this um, Justin Murphy's like exit from academia and kind of tying it back to you, um, your exit from uh, academia. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to be that right now, and again, I'm, I'm saying like it seems to be, I'm not sure if this is actually the case, but it seems to be that 
more and more people are actually able to um, be able to be kind of like online intellectuals, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm supporting myself through like part-time work and, you know, I think that really if you want to research certain things like, you know, philosophy and uh, so any capitalist politics, no one's going to pay you to do that really anymore. Uh, ac academia is so competitive. Like what the program I was in was a, you know, professional program training uh, analysts, economists, things like that. And uh, it w I, I don't think it was really putting me in any position to challenge capitalism or to build alternatives or anything. I think it was training me to be a bureaucrat. Um, and, you know, as interesting as some of the classes were, I just like thought about working 40 hours a week for, uh, you know, a state agency or something like that. And it made me want to blow my fucking brains out. So, you know, <laughs> um, I think there's a lot to be said about teaching yourself about autodidacts. I think, you know, you know, Fisher was in many respects an autodidact. Um, I think that if you want to learn something that's like outside of the STEM fields, you can pretty much do it outside of universities these days. Like I wouldn't, you know, want a doctor to operate on me if he's self-taught, self but pretty much, <laughs> you know, philosophy, uh, economic statistics, you can teach yourself all of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think bringing up even like Spinoza's um, example, I mean, he didn't have any like proper um, philosophical training, at least to some extent. And mm -hmm. um, he's even like a really good, I mean, he was doing that stuff in the 1600s. So, um, yeah, I mean, even now with, uh, I guess like the technological, um, capabilities that we have, um, or resources, it's, it's a lot easier, um, for people, at least the average person to kind of get their ideas out. Um, whether they're for substantial, sure. it's, you know, whatever, but I think, you know, the next step though, is figuring out how to mobilize, you know, capital in order to, uh, kind of have money on the left to mount these like Cernicek and Williams talk about how it's necessary to have, you know, in addition to just like these intellectual resources that start accruing uh, physical resources, whether that be capital or uh, what have you to kind of start navigating a left accelerationism navigating accelerationism away from its, you know, myopic, uh, self-destructive tendencies, I guess, uh, towards a, you know, you can't, you can't just disavow money yet, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of, um, I guess, you know, you would call it ultra leftism on the left. Um, it's idealism, I yeah. suppose. Um, I'm glad you brought up the money thing, um, actually, because I think even to some extent, um, I don't, I don't want to like connect it too much cause I know land would hate this, but it seems to be like, that's something even land talks about in like cryptocurrent, um, like the importance of like Bitcoin. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I, I really like that kind of conversation, the back and forth that he and Murphy had where Murphy was talking about, uh, you know, left-wing patches in a, uh, you know, blockchain based currency system. I think that, uh, you know, Marx talked about labor vouchers is an alternative to money where you know you work uh you use the labor vouchers to pay for commodities commodities are not paid for using wages because that kind of leads to this dynamic of inflation that has been kind of a progressive plague 
for a, like a progress, like a consistent question in economics. So you could use something like blockchain to create a labor voucher system where, you know, you work, you spend the labor voucher instead of becoming tradable money, it's destroyed. Uh, you could use blockchain to create a system like that, that is more geared towards a left-wing project in which, you know, could be used for, you know, democratic economic planning uh, on a community basis. So say you have like a local bank issuing a communal community-based uh, currency, then you can plan where labor goes in that community and use a uh, blockchain-based currency to, you know, essentially do a decentralized planned socialist economy. Yeah. That I think you brought this up actually in what's his name? Um, uh, Cooper, uh, Machinic, uns- uh, what, is it, what is it called? Machinic, um, Machinic, uh, or, oh, uh, on Cooper's podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cooper's, um, you bring that up the Cybersyn, I think. Oh, Cybersyn. Yeah. yeah um, Cybersyn. Yeah. That was a Chilean project, um, designed by this guy, Stafford Beard, which kind of like it was far more centralized and I think is ideal mm-hmm. in an you know, doing any kind of economic planning, I think you want it to be more networked than centralized. And that's what made it so easy to topple and destroy when Pinochet came in. You could just like go to the central offices of CyberSign and destroy it. Um, But I think, you know, that was an early example of uh, that kind of... Like alternative to... um, Exactly, yeah. Like even, what would you call it? Like money... um... Mm Because the main, I mean, like the primary function of money is pretty much just account accounting. Um, mm-hmm. um, like and the, yeah, I mean, like blockchain does solve a lot of you know the problems that come with the accounting. Uh, it's a system to automate kind of double entry bookkeeping, uh, mm-hmm. which you know two companies could use to like square their accounts. Um, it kind of removes the need for an arbiter. I guess you yeah know, like a central bank or something like that yeah. and it you know it's ironic that land has pivoted towards this hyper capitalist right-wing framework because his early work was so oriented towards these like systems which would uh, decentralize and dissolve uh, centralized power um, so it's interesting to see him go in the complete opposite direction in the last 20 years or so yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, I think I brought. I think Meta Nomad brought this up in the last podcast I did. Um, how this? Seems, yeah, I'm interested to hear that one. Yeah. Um, he brought up. He brings up the example about how land seems to be kind of taking a completely well, not completely different, but a tangential like um, what do you call it? Uh, framework for a lot of his work now, um, especially with something like even Land mentions this: the transcendental deduction of money itself. Um, which just seems kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. What do you think particularly about Land's trajectory and his way of thinking from the nineties, like CCRU stuff. And then I think, you know, um, there are definitely like, it's easy to see for me having read the dark enlightenment and his earlier stuff, how that kind of developed. Um, you know, his philosophy was always very anti-humanist. He was interested in what, human life would look like after humanity as it were was you know 
unrecognizable. And I think that's where, you know, he gets into a lot of this stuff about like eugenics and stuff like that. He's kind of looking at the current distribution of social power and the way that race relations are reified in modern society. And he thinks that, you know, these technologies of gene editing and stuff like that are coming into existence at a massively unequal time in our history and that, you know, they will be distributed on une unevenly. Um, so I think that's where like some of the weird race stuff comes in. Um, as for the economics of it, it just seems profoundly misguided to me because I think if you look at, you know, what's blocking the accelerative tendency, I think nine times out of 10, it's not a political thing. It's a capitalism thing. Mm -hmm. um, this, you know, kind of postponed thesis that I brought up about how uh, labor is a, a vital part of, I guess this is more the autonomous Marxist school that labor is a vital part of, you know, driving forward acceleration. Uh, I don't think you can have capitalism without labor. And I think that's kind of what he is leaning towards, I guess. Yeah. Um, for me, I, I feel like there is no potential for an accelerationist project without Human a left, labor. I guess. Or, yeah. or, or a left. Um, mm -hmm. What do you, what exactly like, um, like a humanist left, like, um, not necessarily. I mean, like, I think, um, you know, in our, I guess, preliminary conversation, I brought up the example of San Junipero. Have you seen that Black Mirror episode? Yeah, it's a really good um, episode. It's like a digital, you know, I think it could be a very utopian, but entirely non-humanist future where it's basically a digital p playground almost, um, you know, this laborless future could be it, it doesn't necessitate us existing and you know it could incorporate these kind of techno utopian visions that like land talks about or someone like ray kurzweil talks about it doesn't necessarily have to be centered on human life and i think that's i guess where like uh, human life as it currently exists our social life as it currently exists and i think that's where a lot of the left gets stuck is like trying to rewind time to a period where there was you know an organic uh communal life i think we have to create a new communal life that might not look exactly like you know our model of like socialism where everyone you know soviet communism or you know prudonian socialism or anything like that i think it's a matter of I guess, I think, you know, Cernicek and Williams' book title sums it up perfectly, Inventing a Future. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Jack, uh, I do have to go pretty soon just because um, I am running out of time here. At the, I, I rent out the place that I... Um, Fair enough, yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, I do want to just ask you real quick again, uh, do you have any, like, final thoughts or any things that we didn't get to in the podcast? Um, I know that I did mention we did want to cite it more towards pop culture, but I thought the the way the conversation no, was going totally was fair. um yeah i think that um you know the left can't shy away from embracing uh technology as a site of struggle um i think that that has definitely happened uh it's kind of become more of a critique of distribution uh than a critique of production and i think that uh it's well past time to look not only at how goods are you know, 
produced unevenly and distributed unevenly, but also, or distributed unevenly, but to look at how our entire productive apparatus could be changed to, you know, enable maximal human emancipation through increasing free time, uh, through automation, through, you know, uh, social planning, through these, you know, technologies that we've kind of shied away from as viewing them as inherently capitalist. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, definitely. I want to bring up real quick. I think that a lot of the way that this could work is by like, I must say something that might sound a little cringe, but um, like mobilizing like accelerationists. Um, not like in the sense of like, uh, what would you say? Like theoretically, because I, I don't think accelerationism has like praxis. I think that's kind of, um, at least for me personally, I think it's a little bit like uh, misguided. Um, but I think if it were to have an implementation of praxis, um, I think a lot of like accelerationists are kind of scared to embrace certain like leftist tendencies. Um, and I think like that's the opposite of what they should be worrying about. I think if anything, leftist projects seem to be, um, I guess if you take, I, mean, I definitely agree with that. I think like, you know, if you look at the right accelerationist model of an accelerationist practice practice, like land is talking about how great he thinks Bloomberg is. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's a very promising future where Michael Bloomberg is president, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that, uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I, I guess real quick, again, backtracking to Nick Land, what do you think about some of the things that he says um, on his Twitter? Because it seems to be like he's just shitposting a lot. Um, it's hard to, it's so hard to tell. I mean, like, it's it's like another situation with Justin Murphy. Like, he might just be playing the heel to a certain extent. I think, you know, what's so interesting about the Dark Enlightenment is that it's really a pure distilled antithesis of, you know, socialism. The, you know, objective is still maximal human, uh, human liberty, or, or I guess maximal, not even necessarily human, but maximal liberty and emancipation, but the means are the exact opposite. You know, instead of abolishing the state and class society, it's a rigid class structure, a state which is omnipotent, basically. I think he's almost creating an antithesis like it's hard to tell it's hard to tell yeah, yeah. I, de I no i definitely get what you're um saying like he, he seems to be like the perfect uh you you kept you keep saying uh like an antithetical project like the dark enlightenment seems to be like an antithesis to the current i mean this is something that uh, mark fisher says in terminator versus avatar which is that nick land is the kind of antagonist the left needs you know mm -hmm. and i think that that sums it up perfectly you know he his early philosophy called the left on you know, failing to deliver on technological emancipation. I think his current philosophy calls the left on its, you know, unwillingness to deal with the realities of sovereign power. Um, I think that he's, you know, he is the antagonist we need right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Meta does mention, and not just in my podcast, um, I think he mentions it, I forgot who he interviewed, but he mentions how land is um, kind of like, doing transcendental exit um and he's more at least in some respects he's more of an anarchist and i think i prefer reading land on that frame than what absolutely most people... i mean like i think his early work you know there's n almost nothing i mean excluding the fact that the framework of technological liberation is inherited from marx he was always more of an anarchist mm -hmm. yeah um 
And then, because I, I want to ask this question about land's racism, because um, I asked Meta this, um, like if land, well, how I don't think land is racist, but not, I didn't, I didn't word the question right, because I don't think he's a racist in the same way like Donald Trump, quote unquote, could no. be considered a racist, but no. he is a he is a racist. Um. He is. He definitely is. Like, <laughs> I think what's really interesting about the Dark Enlightenment is that while I think the diagnosis is wrong, you know, in regards to what is blocking acceleration in the long run, it's a really good analysis of like um, how representative democracy has failed and turned into kind of like institutionalized grift and bureaucracy and appropriation uh, into like different coalitions. And it's also a really good analysis of how race relations move from socially constructed to like very real tangible aspects of a society, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that he is still pretty wrong about a lot of stuff, but you know, yeah, it's hard to tell whether he's genuine or not. <laughs> Did you catch any of the debate or debate quote unquote um, with Reza? Negristani, um, I didn't. They seem to be talking mostly about ontology, right? Yeah, is that mostly ontology? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, just because raises all of his what is what would you call it? Like metaphysics is completely, at least in my opinion, like adverse to um, lands. But um, they seem to. I feel like they should agree on a lot of things, but at the same time, they they disagree on a lot of things. Like at least notions of time. Um, yeah, I don't actually, I'm not super familiar with Reza's stuff. Like, what is the basic gist of his ontology, would you say? Um, he kind of returns to Hegel, um, but instead okay. of doing like... A, yeah, I could see why Land would hate that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> instead of doing the whole dialectics, it seems to be um, he replaces uh, Hegelian dialectics um, with what would you call um, complex uh, complexity theory or complex theory. Um, interesting. So it's still... Think, you know, it's interesting to like, see how Hegel kind of infiltrates some of like Land's thinking even like he talks about I think in his interview with either Justin or Metanomad uh how like capital is kind of I I would compare capital to the world his or world historical subject of like Hegel's philosophy to the Geist mm. in that it's like capital that is coming to know itself coming to increased levels of rationalization and self-knowledge and understanding about the world rather than the human subject. So I think in that respect, Land's kind of a Hegelian. He'd probably hate yeah. that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, he, he'd probably, he's probably like, uh, his his Hegel senses are tingling, you know? Uh, yeah. Someone used his name in the same sentence, but um, yeah. Well, Jack, um, I'm going to have to let you go here soon, but do you have any final comments or anything that you, uh, like, again, I know I said this for like the fifth time now, but do you have anything that you'd want to add or, um, where, where we could find you on social media or anything like that. Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter at TechnoEcologic, I guess. Um, I don't know when you're planning to release it. Have you released the Meta Nomad episode? I did. Um, I just recently, um, I don't I think on Monday, two days ago. Gotcha. So it's it's pretty, it's brand new. So I, yeah. So yeah, I mean, about the time that, uh, you know, maybe this is coming out, I might have something up finally on my YouTube channel, which is uh, Utopia TV and is on YouTube at Utopia TV YouTube or on Twitter at Utopia TV YouTube. Um, hopefully I'll have at least a teaser up. Uh, I kind of want to throw up the Nick land episode as soon as I can, but uh, yeah. Um, I was 
happy to talk to you about it and uh yeah thanks for having me on yeah no problem um but uh alrighty jack um i'll let you go then but uh thanks so much for coming on the show taking the time all right good talking to you corn have a good one Peace. Alrighty, guys. Well, again, thank you so much. Please like, share, and subscribe. Um, if you have any suggestions for the next show, please share them with me on Twitter um, at Pop with Corn, and that's underscore capital Pop, lowercase W, capitalized C O R N Corn. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. Contrary on. Have a conversation with your car along.